If you have a Bible, open it to the book of Jonah. If you need a Bible, raise your hand and we'll get you one. Alex, I see that hand. I always wanted to say that. Uh, I've got to tell you, I want to go through the book of Jonah, but I, I need to just share a little bit about uh, this weekend. Corrine and I went to a conference. It's called Origins. It was in downtown L.A. at the Club Nokia. Friday, it actually wasn't there. Friday, what we did is we met at a small little uh, church that's meeting and kind of sharing a facility with a social working place. And we went on a tour of some different areas in Los Angeles. We saw a place in Los Angeles called Path. It's people assisting the homeless. And what this is, they call it the Path Mall. And it's like a mini mall where the homeless can come and get assistance in finding jobs, can get health care, can get... Um, there's actually a courtroom in there where if they've got you know minor offenses like uh, being drunk in public, they can get those things cleared up. So it's all under one roof, this place where the homeless can go and find assistance. Each organization is separately sponsored and controlled, but they just meet under one roof. There was a gentleman named Joel. This guy is just brilliant. He's talking about things in homeless people all over the country. President Bush, as well as President Obama, have sought him out to get advice on what to do with the homeless situation in America. And he is already rethinking of how we do things and how things can be done. He, uh, he's very, I don't, excited. He, he's aggressive in what he wants to do. And he was inspiring. He was so moved that we can make a difference in the lives of these people. And their success rate in getting the homeless off the street and into jobs is astounding. It's like 70% which is unbelievable for the homeless, just incredible. And so we got to talk with him and pick his brain. He shared with us for a while. And then we uh, went and heard from a guy who works at a, a place called ShareFest. And this was marvelous to me. This was a man who was a pastor, and he left ministry so that he could do more ministry. Think about that. I love that. I love the idea that, you know, you don't have to be a pastor. In fact, being a pastor was hindering him from doing what God wanted him to do. To bridge and bring organizations together to help a community. And they have actually people coming to him, asking him for help to get a volunteer group together. And he goes to the churches. He's gone and done a... a Home and what is that? Home extreme home makeover. They sought him out and they say, "Hey, can you help us get some people?" He said, "Sure, we can do that." The police department goes to this guy Joel with a path, and they ask him, "Who are the people on the streets?" Because they go out on the streets, they meet them, they find out where they're at. If you're a veteran, we can get you help over here. Are you a mother and have children and there's you know have been abused? We can get you. They know the people who are homeless more than anyone else. And so the police department goes to these people and asks for help. And I was just like, oh my goodness. This is amazing. This is wonderful. Then we went to, I will get into Jonah, but I got to share this. 
I went and we went to uh, the Fred Jordan rescue mission. And we met a man named Michael Mata. He's a professor. You wouldn't think he's a professor by the way he looks. He almost looks homeless. But he's a professor, just this kind of eccentric guy. And he told us how to read your city, how that you can find out who is in your city, you can find out the income of those in your city just by a few things. You find out the apartment rent, you know how much approximately those people are making a month because it's usually about a third of what their salary is a month. You see two mailboxes on a place, you know there's two families that live there. And he took us through a, a journey in Los Angeles for a three-hour tour, a three-hour tour, through Los Angeles. And we went from Skid Row and we walked down the streets and he just would tell us, okay, look around, what do you see? You know, and we're like, well, there's graffiti here and you guys notice this sign? Look at what languages are here. I don't know what languages, that's right, okay, this is a very heavily, uh, you know, uh, Arabic nation or area. Um, this one is very, you know, Hispanic, and you would just see these things, and he would just observe these things. Look at, you know, the buildings here. Now notice the change. Notice there's more trees here. Why are there more trees? Because this area gets more care. The city leaves this area alone because that's where the homeless live, but they cater more to this area because they want to bring in business here. See, they're putting up lofts here. They're trying to get people here. They're trying to change the demographics of this area. So in a while or in the future, you're going to have a lot more people here. And the idea was if you are a, a, a Christian, a, a church, and you're wanting to reach your community, do you know who they are? Do you know what their, their you know, ethnics, ethnicity is? Do you know where they're living? Do you know where they go to shop? Do you know what they're shopping for? You can see all that around. And it was just amazing the things he was showing us and telling us. And it was amazing the change that would take place in just a few blocks. And I was thinking, well, I live, we live in Upland. Upland's boring. You know, we don't have all these, you know, tall skyscrapers and old buildings. But we do have a lot going on here. There is an area where there's a lot more liquor stores in certain areas. You notice that? At places where there's a lot of apartments, there's a lot of liquor stores. You don't find as many when you move up northern area. Why not? They're targeting people. They're targeting because they know that we can get these people to buy this. And businesses target places. You could tell a lot by billboards. Billboard targets people, but we are unaware of many of those things. Anyway, it was, it was amazing. There, there is a lot of things in there. I'm just still kind of mulling over. I think what I, I want to impress on us the most is these people were not, quote, ministers. Many of them just citizens, people who saw a need, wanted to make a difference. The owner for Tom's Shoes was there. He explained how Tom's Shoes got started. He just wanted to get shoes to the children in need. And so he thought this plan up, if you buy a pair, I'll give a pair away. And he's been doing that. So many organizations that got started, one, one of the speakers told us that we need to consider the success of our congregations, not by how many people, but by zero. If there are zero 
kids that are orphans, then your church is a success. If there is zero people who are in drug abuse situations, then your church is a success. Instead of, we got 10,000 people, but you got 5,000 people that are hurting, what good is your church in your community? If your church disappeared right now, would anyone notice? Would anyone care? Oh my gosh. That struck me. Because we need to be the voice of Christ, the heart of Christ in our community. And if we are gone, I pray that people say, where, where did that body of believers go? We need them. And so it's a, it was a challenge for me. I throw it out because I think it's a challenge for us. And I'm sure I'll be sharing things about that later on as um, opportunity arises. But I, I had to, while it was fresh in my mind, I had to just kind of spew it out at you guys. That was a nice way of putting it, wasn't it? Okay, the book of Jonah, chapter 3. The book of Jonah has been an an incredible journey. We've seen changes that take place in the sailor's life in chapter 1. As Jonah got on the boat and was fleeing from the Lord, we saw the changes that took place in Jonah... In chapter 2, as he began to worship and finally came to a place where he repented and cried out to God and said, okay, you win, I will do what you say. And in chapter 3, we see the change of an entire city. Let's read chapter 3 first. It's a short chapter. It's the shortest of the chapters that are here, or actually it and chapter 2. It says, then the word of the Lord came to Jonah a second time. Go to the great city of Nineveh and proclaim to it the message I give you. Jonah obeyed the word of the Lord and went to Nineveh. Now Nineveh was a very important city. A visit required three days. On the first day Jonah started into the city, he proclaimed, Forty more days and Nineveh will be overturned. The Ninevites believed God. They declared a fast and all of them, from the greatest to the least, put on sackcloth. When the news reached the king of Nineveh, he rose from his throne, took off his royal robes, covered himself with sackcloth, and sat down in the dust. Then he issued a proclamation in Nineveh by the decree of the king and his nobles. Do not let any man or beast, herd or flock, taste anything. Do not let them eat or drink, but let man and beast be covered with sackcloth. Let everyone call urgently on God. Let them give him Give up their evil ways and their violence. Who knows? God may yet relent and with compassion turn from his fierce anger so that we will not perish. When God saw what they did and how they turned from their evil ways, he had compassion and did not bring upon them the destruction he had threatened. Short chapter. Huge transformation. A whole city changes. The city was so big that it took Jonah three days to walk across it, making this proclamation. And it's interesting how God so often deals with cities. Remember what Jesus said in Acts when he 
was commissioning the disciples. Go ye therefore and make disciples to all nations. You will be my witnesses, he said, in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the other most parts of the world. He, he gave these cities, commissioned them to whole cities. He didn't say, just go to your neighborhood, just go to your home, talk to your family. He said, go to Jerusalem. Go to Judea. Here we say, God telling him, go to Nineveh. I care about the whole city. That's what was interesting about that city walk that we did in discovering the, the people of the city. It's God seemed to care about the whole city of Nineveh. Not just one portion, not just those who were sort of religious, but the whole city. It's like God's perspective, his lowest denomination starts with the whole city. And then it goes to the world. I think we, we think so small. We think, well, maybe just a neighbor. I can invite a neighbor to church. And God's thinking, no, I want you to go and change the city of Nineveh. I want you to get them to turn. I care about all of them. And, and so Jonah is obedient. You know, it gives us a little bit of what he said. He probably said more because we know in verse 5, the Ninevites believed God and they declared a fast of all men from the greatest to the least. They put on sackcloth. They had this idea of God showing mercy. And so Jonah had probably shared more that if they would turn that God would be merciful. But here we see that the whole city believes and it results in an action. They believed God and then they declared a fast. And I want to spend a couple minutes and talk about what it means to believe in something. Years ago when we took a group to Cardiff, Wales, we were inside this school and we were putting on like a, a VBS for the week there at the school. And I forget what the theme was, but we had a volcano and it was pretty cool looking. And we had this smoke machine that you could turn on and it would make you know, smoke for the volcano. And everyone said, well, don't use it. We can't use it. But, you know, it was just calling to me to be used. Um, and I thought the kids would think it was so cool. It's got smoke. It's a volcano. And, and so I, against orders, um, turned on the smoke machine to impress the kids, and it started going, and it was pretty cool. And I turned it off real quick, because then I noticed there was a smoke alarm right above the, the volcano, and sure enough, the smoke alarm went off. You know, the smoke alarm goes off, and I'm like, oh, that's why they said not to turn it on. You know, sorry. But what was interesting is that all the kids who were outside playing, they had this giant ball, and they were all playing. When they heard the smoke alarm go off, they all ran inside. There's a fire alarm. Let's go check it out. And they all ran inside. Why? Because they didn't believe it was a fire. They just believed some idiot turned on the, the volcano. Because if they believed that there was a fire, if they saw that building being consumed and enraged by the flames, they would run away. If they believed that, they would do this. And you see, one of the things that takes place is a lot of people believe cognitively. 
Oh, I know. Oh, I know that's wrong. I know God doesn't like that. I believe. But it doesn't result in an action. They believe, but it has no change in their lives. And this is becoming very prevalent in our culture. It's becoming very prevalent in in some areas in like the emergent church movement where, you know, you can believe, but you don't have to change. And then there's the, the other end of the spectrum where people do a lot of things, but don't really believe. You know, they, they say grace at mealtime, but they don't really believe in God. They just say grace. So we used to do. I still remember the prayer. Bless this food, O Lord, for which we're about to receive, and bless this happy home. And, you know, and it was, we weren't a happy home, but that was the same prayer we prayed every time. Why? It's just what we did. We, we did something, but we didn't believe. And some people believe something, and they don't really do it. And there's this dichotomy taking place so often with our society today where we know about things, we just don't believe them. It doesn't affect us. It doesn't change what we do. In this case, it brought about a change. It brought about a clarity for the whole city. And what that means is they all had to recognize that what Jonah was saying was true. He said something, and oh my gosh, that applies to me. Hey, you better get out of your car. It's on fire. Oh my gosh, you're right. I'm out of here. And this wasn't just a few people thought, yeah, maybe he's right. And other people, the whole group recognized, you know what, what he's saying is true. And so now it comes back to us. When we hear truth, when we hear how we are supposed to live as human beings, it's not exclusive to just Christians. God has designed us, has created us. He has shown us how we should live. This is an amazing thing to think about. The disciples of Jesus, when did they become, quote, Christians? Most people think it's either in John 20 when Jesus rose again and breathed on them or at Pentecost. Those are probably the two basic schools of thought. I leaned to John 20 because he said, receive ye the Spirit, and at that time they received the Spirit. Think about this. What was he doing for that three years, and who was he talking to? He was making disciples of people who were not yet believers. He was showing them the way. We so many times think, well, you first got to come to faith, become a a Christian, and then we'll show you what to do. Well, God is is convicting the world of sin, it says in Acts chapter 1. He is at work within people's hearts. He was at work within Nineveh's heart before Jonah got there. And so when Jonah got there and said, hey, you guys need to change, you need to stop, you need to stop this way of living, they said, you know what? I know that's true. I have been convicted. 
I believe God, I am going to change. My car is on fire. I need to stop this. It is going to be detrimental to me. See, there's a lot of people who know things are wrong. And you don't have to be a Christian to know that having an affair is not a good thing. There's a lot of people who know having an affair is wrong, but they still have an affair. Why? Belief hasn't taken hold of their life. And the whole group saw and recognized. I think we as a society are able to see and recognize the need that we have. The bent that we have towards just being consumed with our, ourselves and being a, a consumption-generated people at the expense of others. Me first. And so these people, they recognized their need and they all acknowledged God. Now, many of us recognize our need, but we don't want to acknowledge it, especially in front of others. We're embarrassed. We want to hide it. We have our pride. What will people say? And this is the tragedy. You know, if you go to some uh, substance abuse place, Alcoholics Anonymous, if you go there and you say, you know, I'm an alcoholic, and you start telling your story, and it might just be horrendous. I mean, it might make the hair on your neck stand up. People are like, ooh, wow, that's crazy. But at the end, you know what they do? Thank you. Thank you for sharing. They thank you for being open. But we come to the house of God and we're afraid to be open. We don't want to tell people our business and we don't want to, you know, because what, what's going to happen here? Oh, I got a verse for you, buddy. You know, you know it's like, ah, <laughs> thank you. You know, th- thank you there for that verse and, and the, the way you package the condemnation so nicely. You know, we, we come here and we know how to, to just exalt ourselves. And so if a person is involved with something that they shouldn't be, they can't come here and open it up. We won't say thank you. We're going to give them correction. We're going to show them what to do when really what's happening is they're believing God and they're wanting to make a change. And we should appreciate that. We should welcome that. In fact, this should be a place where that happens. This should be the place where people can come and make the change that they want in their lives without getting condemned, embarrassed. Because if we were all to be honest, we would all feel a lot better. So who wants to start? Share that. <laughs> Belief that says, I agree, and conviction that moves to a response. They believed God, and they then responded. As they responded... They declared a fast, and all of them, to the greatest to the least, put on sackcloth. Sackcloth is clothes that are just rough. They're basically impoverished kind of clothes. It's to show an outward sign of how you feel inside. You're mourning. So you put on this old garment because I'm not putting out my best. I'm not going out on the town. 
I can't. Not the way I feel. And I want people to know how I feel. Like you go to a funeral, they wear black. Why? Because this is not a festive occasion. We're, we're in mourning. And so they put on sackcloth. And then what's interesting is verse 6. It says, When the news reached the king of Nineveh, he rose from his throne, took off his royal robes, covered himself with sackcloth, and sat down in the dust. This was a, a great city, a big city. It took three days to get across it on foot. Pretty big. And so the king of Nineveh is a pretty prominent person. For him to get down from his throne, to take off his royal robe, to put on the sackcloth like everybody else, and then to sit in the dust like everybody else is a pretty big deal. It's taking a lot for this king to make that kind of thing, to wear these peasant clothes. It shows that he believed that judgment was true. Otherwise, he wouldn't have left his throne. He would have stayed on there. Well, good, I'm glad you people are taking care of this. I don't have to. I'm the king. I don't need to take off this robe. Don't you know who I am? And you see... This is the problem that we have. We don't want to leave our thrones. We are aware of something. A, a conviction comes into our lives that you, you shouldn't do this. You shouldn't live this way. You need to stop sleeping with your girlfriend. You know that that's not acceptable in the eyes of Christ. And it's like, you know what? Don't judge me. Don't, don't tell me what to do. Oh, I know, I know other people need to hear this stuff, but that doesn't apply to me. You see, I'm going to be the king on my throne. And I'm not taking off my robe. And I'm not going to change my life just because God tells me that my car is on fire. And what happens is we know about it, we cognitively acknowledge it, but we really don't believe that that's meant for us. And so we don't get off the throne. We don't take off those garments. We, we remain the same even though we say we believe that that's God. And that's the danger. That's the danger that we live in is to have a knowledge and think that knowing is enough if it doesn't affect us. That's dangerous. When we become the king of our own lives, when we set ourselves up, so that we will not move. And, and that's kind of what happened with Jesus in Matthew chapter 12. If you turn there, Jesus is telling people to repent, to change their ways. And the Pharisees say, who are you? What gives you the right to tell us that we need to change our lives? Who do you think you are? Rabbi coming down here and telling us we need to make these changes. And in verse 39, Jesus' response in chapter 12, verse 39, he answered as they asked him, if you're really who you say you are, give us a sign. Prove that you have the right to ask us what to do or to tell us what to do. In verse 39, Jesus answered and said, a wicked and adulterous generation asks for a miraculous sign, but none will be given it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. 
For as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of a huge fish, so the Son of Man will be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. The men of this generation, or the men of Nineveh, will stand up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it. For they repented at the preaching of Jonah, and now one greater than Jonah is here. This pagan, heathen nation listened, and they repented. And you, in your religious splendor, will not take off your robe, will not put on sackcloth, will not change. The people of Nineveh will condemn you because they listened to Jonah. And Jonah was like a a B-rated prophet. The guy didn't even do things right. God had to kind of push him along. They listened to the Jonah who had to be prompted And one greater than Jonah has given us instruction. And again, we don't like people getting in our business. We don't like people telling us what to do. Don't judge me. Don't don't put that justice on me. Don't try and put that condemnation. And again, there's there's a, a big area of the church today that just doesn't want to acknowledge sin. Don't talk about sin. People don't like to hear about sin. We don't want that justice imposed upon us. But you know, that's not true. We all like justice. We're glad that people don't come in and rob our house or rape our wives or our daughters. We, we don't like that. And when you're on the freeway and someone cuts you off, you guys get a lot of justice right away. You're all for justice all of a sudden. So it's not that we don't want justice. It's just we don't want it to apply to us. We want to stay on our throne. We don't want to take off our robe. That doesn't apply to me. It applies to everyone else. Let them hear it. But I'm going to be what? My own person. And you see, self-centeredness will lead to self destruction self-centeredness if everyone was self-centered it would lead to anarchy and it will lead to destruction and so when God says you need to stop what he is saying is the building is on fire if you don't get out you will be destroyed we need to decide if we want to remain on our own throne listen to his words and allow them to apply to our lives and change our lives or if we just like what we want. And you guys, this is a scary thing. What's scary is when we no longer care. What's scary is when it no longer bothers me that I'm doing something that isn't good. It no longer bothers me that I'm involved with a style or living that isn't appropriate. It doesn't affect me any longer. What we need to do is pray that it would. Pray that it would break our hearts. Pray that it would, it would provoke a response like it did to the king of Nineveh, like it did to the people of Nineveh, that it would move us to, to grieve for where we're at 
to hate where we're at. There have been times in my life where I am so aware of my self-centeredness. When I am aware that I am not a good father and not a good husband, and I just want to weep. I just want to cry, and I think, oh God, can you redeem the years that I've blown, the things that I've done that have been insensitive to my wife, that have been hurtful to my children. Oh God, and it breaks my heart. And I'm thankful that I care enough to want to change. So when God speaks, what does your heart do? When God speaks, how does it affect us? Do we care? Or do we sit on our own throne? Well, I know the scriptures say that, but I'm going to do it anyway. Why? I want to. I like it. And we don't realize that the whole point of God's judgment is care for us. You see, if God didn't care, there would be no Jonah. If God didn't care, there would be no Jesus. If God didn't care what happened to us, he would leave us to that destruction. But he doesn't. He sends warning. He sends someone to make us aware of what's going on. He sends in that person to say, the house is on fire. You need to get out. Your life is heading in the wrong direction. You need to change for yourself. And we need to decide if we're going to get off the throne or not. In Jeremiah chapter 18, verse 7 and 8, the Lord says, If at any time I announce that a nation or kingdom is to be uprooted, torn down, and destroyed, and if that nation, I warned, repents its evil, then I will relent and not inflict on the disaster I had planned. If people will acknowledge then I will not bring the disaster. And, and you know, I, I think of it so many times, we think sin is God not letting us do the things we like. And that's kind of our view. Oh, God's the big party pooper in the sky. I want to have a little fun. And God says, no, no, no. Don't drink that. Drink some water. Oh, boy, yeah, this is great water. No, 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 don't have fun. And that's our view of God. Instead of recognizing that the, the instruction of God and, and the, the commands of God are never without purpose. That they are there for a reason. They're there for our safeguard. They are there to strengthen and help us to be better human beings. Not to tear us down. That they're there for our benefit. But the truth is, we don't care many times. And it leads again to a self-destruction. I, I, I don't care that God wants me to change. I don't want to. I, I don't see things the way you do. 
And instead of looking at it perhaps as God is going to bring judgment, if you do this, God's going to get you, I think we need to see that there is a way of life. The, the proverb says there is a way that seems right to a man, but the end of it leads to destruction. And I think we need to see that if I live my life a certain way, I step into the judgment of God. Not God comes and gets me, but I'm living in a way that God has to bring judgment because of what the condition. It seems right, but it, it's under the umbrella of destruction. And it's not God changing. It's us moving our lives into areas that are not healthy, that brings destruction. And so what God is telling us to do is to live a life that does not bring destruction on your life. And don't we want that? Jesus said, if you ask for bread, if your child asks for bread, will you give him a stone? If he asks for fish, would you give him a scorpion? Do you really think that if you ask God to give you an abundant and a full life, that he's going to withhold anything good from you? Do you really think that he's going to say, well, that is a lot more fun and you would really have a better life if you did this, but I want you to wear skirts to your ankles and, you know, button up that collar. No, I don't want you having any fun. Do you really think that God wants to rain on your parade or, or do you see God as really wanting to keep you from a life of destruction? Destruction physically, destruction emotionally, and destruction spiritually. So when God speaks, are we going to listen? Are we going to hear what he says? What's the throne that you need to step down from? Maybe it's pride. Maybe it is some vice that you're being excessive in. Maybe it is a, a physical relationship and you're not married. If God didn't care, he wouldn't warn. And we need to ask ourselves, if we believe. Or if. We're just listening. Because unless we believe. We won't. Rid ourselves. Of the consequences. That come with God's warning. You know. I. I talk to and share a lot with young adults, counsel, and various things. And I once was one, uh, I think, uh, many years ago. And things don't change as far as our desires and what we want. And I have seen too many people devastated because they didn't take heed to God's warning. People who have known Christ, who have you know, 
had faith in Christ, who have come to churches, and, and they believed, they sang, they opened their Bibles, they pray. Um, but this one area, you know, I, I want to hold on to that. I don't believe that I need to listen to God on that area. You know, and I, I can tell the stories, but more importantly, what will be your story? What will become of us if we don't listen, if we don't care? Will we get off our throne? Will we take off our robes? Will we, will we grieve for the condition that we find ourselves in? And if you don't, then ask God to make your heart aware of his heart. Ask God to change you. Because there's a reason God gives us instruction. And it's not because he doesn't want us to have fun. It's because he cares. Let's pray. Father, so many times it's difficult for my heart to be aware of the things, the detriment I'm doing to my own life. And God, there's been more than one occasion where I've had to repent that I, I don't feel anything, God. I didn't feel conviction. I just wanted to do this. And I think of David and his psalm, Lord, where he says, Have mercy on me, O God. According to your unfailing love, according to your great compassion, blot out my transgressions. Wash away all my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. God, that, that's what we need. For I know my transgressions and my sin is always before me. Against you, God, and you have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight so that you are right when you speak and justified when you judge. Surely I was sinful at birth, sinful from the time my mother conceived me. Surely you desire truth in the inner parts. You teach me wisdom in the inmost place. Cleanse me with hyssop and I will be clean. Wash me and I will be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you've crushed rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquity. Create in me a pure heart, O oh God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Do not cast me from your presence or take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and grant me a willing spirit to sustain me. Then I will teach transgressions your way and sinners will turn back to you. Oh God, that is our prayer this morning. That you would blot out our transgressions, wash us. That you would renew a faithful spirit within us. God, if we have been wayward, if we have been compromising, if we have not really believed, may we repent. May we change, Lord. And may the joy that comes with that change engulf our lives. May lives of abundance 
be seen in us as we walk with the living God and enjoy the fellowship with you and enjoy the joy that you give. Father, you never take something away from us that you don't give us something better, something that lasts. And I pray you would do that within our hearts today. Lord, we do ask these things in Jesus' name.